was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello everyone, and welcome to a rather special edition of Roger Moore's Cubbyhole. As you probably know, we're on a break from the film reviews this week. The team are getting some much-needed rest and relaxation in preparation for Teffin himself. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! To take the reins as James Bond 007. And to that end, I took the liberty of booking the Cubbyhole hosting team a nice little trip to a health clinic. Shrublands, naturally. Adam's just gone on a motorised traction table, said he wanted to be six inches taller. Phil's recuperating in the massage room, or was it the sits, bath and heat treatment room? I can't remember. I should probably go and check up on them, but once I've recorded this, the nurse wants me to bring her a mink glove for some reason. But uh, anyway, enough of all that. This episode, as you've seen from the title, is the uncut version of our resident car geek, Phil, talking about the classic Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger, back in episode number three. We said it would be released once we hit 1,000 followers on social media. We haven't quite reached that number yet, but since starting the podcast, we've been humbled by all of the kind comments and emails from you, our dear cubbies around the world. So we thought you deserved a bonus in between our reviews of the Dalton and Brosnan Bond films. If you've listened to some of our previous episodes, you'll know that Adam and I do like to tease Phil about his... Well, uh, pretty much about everything, but specifically about his encyclopedic car knowledge. And he came in for some criticism, justified criticism, I might add, when he set us a quiz about car engine sizes in a previous episode. Having said that, we do appreciate his passion and the extensive research he undertakes. We think it really adds an extra dimension to our reviews and hopefully resonates with those of you who are car enthusiasts or those of you who want to learn more about the automobiles of the Bond world. So without further ado, I'll pass you over to Phil. Here it is. It's not quite a monologue. Adam and I do interrupt a couple of times. But here it is, the full, uncut, unedited version of Phil on the Aston Martin DB5. I won't keep it for more than an hour or so, if you'll give me your undivided attention. Yes, thank you very much, Martin. Um, I think, obviously, there's only really one starting point for Goldfinger. I mean... When we talk about the cars and gadgets from each film, this is where there's there's only one car that we can mention, really, to start with, and that is, of course, Bond's glorious Aston Martin DB5, um, which kind of, the very first time it ever appeared in a film, it's bec- gone on to become the most popular in the franchise, having appeared in six films in total. So Goldfinger, Thunderball, um, Goldeneye in 1995, Tomorrow Never Dies, very briefly, Um, And then, of course, in the more modern films in Casino Royale and Skyfall. Um, And it is due to make an appearance in the forthcoming release of No Time to Die, which is hopefully going to be released later this year. Um, Now, I was going to mention this for part of my trivia, but um, when the production team were looking at the, the kind of the car that Bond would have, Aston Martin were actually quite reluctant to offer them um, the DB5, um, principally because they weren't sure, obviously, how it would look in the film, and they weren't sure they wanted to put their name to a car that, that was obviously designed to, you know, sort of fight off villains and things such as that. 
Um, so the production team actually had to buy their own Aston Martins to put into the film, um, which is obviously quite a great expense for the budget. Um, and in future, once he saw the success of the final product and you know the fact that it grossed so much money worldwide, the Bond production team never had to buy a car again. They were always supplied with them for free. So that, that was quite a huge impact, the fact that this car had. And again, I think when you look back at the film and the era that it was in, as Adam's mentioned before, this was the height of the swing in 60s. You know, Cool Britannia was at its absolute peak. And it was so important. The fact that the, the film kind of revolved around the car chases and the action sequences, it was so important that they got that for the, the choice of car right and that they knew what they wanted to do with it. Um, and you see in the very opening stages when um, Bond goes to Q's kind of uh, magic, yeah, magic wonderland where he's creating all these astonishing um, inventions. Um, and he goes to him straight away and says, you know, how's the Bentley doing? And Q goes, oh, I'm afraid it's had its day, old boy. Um, and the fact that, you know, they were, they were so far ahead, the fact the books had looked at the Bentley as kind of Bond's car and they were, they were thinking in the film, well, no, we need to kind of modernise this because it was a really modern car. You know, the DB5 was quite ahead of its time in certain respects. Um, just to give you a few kind of basic specs about the car, so it had a direct overhead cam straight six four litre. It produced 282 brake horsepower, which for 1964 was quite quite excessive, really. Top speed was only 142, but that was still pretty good for, you know, again, for a car that was from the 1960s, when you consider that most people were kind of nipping about in little minis and Ford Anglias. To see an Aston Martin DB5 pull up next to you at the lights is going to be quite a spectacle. Um, and again, so the top specs, 0 to 60, 7.1 seconds. So, you know, even today, it's quite a good performance figure. But the thing is, the part that got me into the bomb franchise in terms of Goldfinger with the Aston Martin was the gadgets. You know, everybody remembers the ejector seat and all the different features that were part of it. So just to run you through the full list of what was available. So passenger side ejector seat was the main one that was um, issued through the gear lever with the little red button. So as Q mentions, whatever you do, don't touch it. Um, and again, we see the uh, the quite posh nature of Q where he goes, lift the top off um, to Bond to get him to, to show him how to do it. There was 0.30 caliber Browning machine guns in the front indicators. So obviously the machine guns flipped out from the front. Um, revolving number plates, which are obviously quite cool. So as Q mentions, they are for every country. So it flips. So that was just a little dial that switched around. So obviously you could move it quite quickly. Actually, Phil, um, I wanted to ask you about that. How is that possible? How big is the barrel? How can it be valid in all countries? So I imagine back then, obviously, the, the countries they would have had for the number plates, it would have just been, I assume it was sort of, I've not actually delved into a huge amount, but I assume there was only sort of a set style of number plates obviously nowadays every single country has their own style of number plate but back then they probably would have only been a set series also the uk probably would have had a series that would have been similar to maybe or probably australian places like that um so basically you could have used it i assume obviously q would have probably wanted it for the countries that bond was being in so also q again kind of probably assumed the countries that bond was going to travel to and had then already I was going to say, isn't it very convenient that the, there's actually three revolving license plates? One's clearly for Britain, one's clearly for Europe, and one's clearly for America. And indeed, in the film, he is in Britain, he is in Europe, he is in America. Although the car never gets to America, so that was a, a waste from you. Yeah, it's quite interesting that it never gets there. Actually. That's a good point, Adam. It's uh, And also, it's the fact that it gets written off so early as well. You know, the fact that 
this is one of the points that's going to raise in the trivia, but um, when Desmond Llewellyn, who plays Q, first appears in From Russia With Love, um, he's quite open to Bond. He's quite, you know, quite welcoming when he does his first take. And Terence Young in that film was quite frustrated with Desmond Llewellyn because he was, he basically went over the angle to say, why are you being appreciative of Bond? You know, here you are as a, this great inventor and this person that gives him these gadgets that are kind of five minutes into the future. And all he does consistently is destroy your hard work. So he literally goes away into the field, blows things up and wrecks all this, this equipment that you've worked so hard on, and then comes back and says, well, what have you got for me now? So you shouldn't be welcoming him with open arms. You're saying, what do you want, Bond? Um, and basically, that's what we kind of see in Goldfinger. So Desmond Llewellyn is completely dismissive of Bond in his opening interactions. And it's kind of that lovable nature that we see throughout the further films. You know, the fact that it's kind of this father-son relationship almost, which is quite a welcoming attribute that um, both characters bring to the to the roles. Um, and again, we see that with um, sort of Q's explanation of the other features on the car. So obviously, well, as Adams mentioned, we get the scene with the ejector seat where ejector seats, you're joking. And obviously Q comes back with, I never joke about my work, 007. Um, so it's just, you know, it's just this great sort of interaction between the two characters as well. Just to go back to your question about the revolving number plates. So that I believe that was, as you said, it was just a very small barrel that was a metal plate that then moved around. So in, in the, um, there were model versions that came up, which was just a little block that could move around. Um, and interestingly, people um, in recent years have tried to replicate Q's um, revolving number plate system to get out of speeding tickets. So there have been a few um, famous incidents of people developing their own DIY sort of revolving number plates to uh, to fool the police, which um, which unsurprisingly hasn't worked because they've then been prosecuted for trying to do it. Um, so it's it's not advisable, let's say, to try and create your own homemade revolving plates. Um, as we've already mentioned, there's the quite ingenious wheel spokes, which um, turn into tire shredders. So that's how he how Bond deals with Tilly Masterson's Mustang. We also have the bulletproof screen and the smoke screen dispenser with the oil slicks as well. So this is in the car chase sequence um, in Geneva where Bond is being chased by the henchman. He, did, he um, uses the smoke screen to cause one of the cars to hit a tree and then the oil slick causes the, the other car to go off the cliff. Interestingly, if you watch carefully, the car that does go off the cliff magically explodes before it hits anything. So it basically starts to go off the edge of the cliff cliff somehow blows up and then hits part of the rocks going down so that's quite a, a bizarre um series of events if you watch quite carefully that's but similar to that's similar to dr no isn't it the hearse i'm sure that explodes yeah. before it would naturally yeah basically it's, it's every single sequence it seems in those early films that whether they just got the pyrotechnic sequencing wrong where it just blows up before before they can get it far enough down the cliff but there's a similar issue in the italian job where they do a similar um, sequence with the minis at the end where one of them basically just rolls down quite gently and then just explodes out of nowhere um, so it's not just bond where it's it's affected by this have you considered the possibility that maybe all the villainous forces in these films have just sourced all their vehicles from dodgy second-hand dealers and that at the first opportunity they will just explode it's nothing to do with the pyrotechnics it's just they're getting all these cars on the cheap and there are inherent technical faults within them which means as soon as they're not on an actual road, as soon as they off-road at all, boom, that's it. Potentially. I mean, 
it would explain a lot why pretty much most of the villains' cars in most of the films do explode quite early on. I mean, I dread to think what the fuel tanks are made of. I think they must be made of marshmallow or something like that with the way they just seem to rupture so easily. Um, but going back, perhaps the most innovative um, device that Bond uses within the Aston Martin DB5 is his sat-nav tracker system. Now, it's actually been worked out that for that system to work in 1964, you'd have probably needed about 15 to 20 satellites orbiting around the world to be able to get that system to work. Now, if you remember, we're in the middle of the space race in this sort of era. America and Russia are both struggling to get rockets, you know, or they're starting to get them into orbit. They're both trying to get to the moon and, you know, to prove that they're the, the leading sort of light within the space race. At best, there were probably only one or two satellites in orbit at that time. So that for that system to work, it would have needed some sort of bizarre system where there were the most powerful satellites on Earth to be able to get just one Aston Martin to be able to track um, Goldfinger's movements. Well, so in, terms of, uh, in terms of touching the moon, Goldfinger's already won. He can put a star on the moon. <laughs> I forgot that, Phil. He can't. I did. I forgot that the laser is so powerful he can put a spot on the moon. So that is a good point. Maybe Goldfinger is the man with the satellites. What does that even mean? It can project a spot on the moon. Does that just mean I can point it at the moon? Because I can do that with just a torch I've got in the kitchen. I can point that at the moon and be like, yeah, there you go. There's a spot on the moon. Yeah, but it's Goldfinger. It, he can do anything. If it makes a physical dent, then how would they even measure that in 1964? <laughs> they, didn't, they hadn't gone there. <laughs> Imagine if um, Goldfinger's just envisioned this uh, big laser gun as like a prototype Death Star, and he's uh, a bit like, yeah, if you leave it long enough, it'll actually blow up the moon. So let's just wait for it. And then like a week later, it's still just putting this little spot on the moon and made like the smallest crater imaginable. But Goldfinger's still there with Robin and the Seven Hoods. It'll do it, it'll do it one day. I'd like to imagine him like just doing a little smiley face, two eyes and those. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would have been more entertaining, I think, if we'd just done like a little blob on each bit, and then I think that could have worked. Um, interestingly, a couple of years ago, Aston Martin, seeing the success of the Aston Martin DB5, and as we've mentioned, it's kind of become the archetypal Bond car. You know, it was once described as the most famous car in the world for good reason. Um, interestingly, Aston Martin a few years ago released their Heritage range where for a lot of money, if you had an Aston Martin DB5 or a DBS from On Majesty's Secret Service or a V8 Vantage as seen in the Living Daylights, they would kit it out for you with the same sort of kit that, had, that Bond had in each car. So, for example, with the DB5, you could have had it with its own bulletproof screen revolving number plates. Unfortunately, they couldn't really get the oil slick to work, so it would spray water out the back. And obviously the machine guns weren't operational. They were just sort of light sequences that could fire. But if you had probably a several millions in the bank, you could literally go to Aston Martin and say, I want my own DB5 like the one in Goldfinger, and they would have made it for you. Um, and last year in 2019, the, the car that was used in the film, the BMT 216A, was sold at auction for $6.4 million. So it's one of the most valuable film cars ever made. Um, and that's now in a private collection um, since being sold last year. Um, so that's just a little bit of background on the DB5 in terms of where it originated from and in terms of a bit of the kit. Um, going through the actual action sequence, so obviously we see it in its early stages. The very first sequence is driving through Geneva 
um, where we integrate with Tilly Masterson in the Mustang. Now, it's quite interesting the fact of how much press the Aston Martin DB5 receives throughout the film. Interestingly, the Mustang at that time was kind of one of the groundbreaking cars for their American audiences as well. People often forget that the Mustang is still the most, the fastest selling um, car of all time. It sold one and a half million units in 24 hours when it was first launched. It caused such a stir in the United States that people had to buy it. Um, and the fact that it's included in the film is quite interesting as well. The fact that, you know, it's um, it's kind of the the op opposite number to Bond's DB5. And it's, it's interesting that they kind of pitch each other against on that mountain pass where they're racing each other the fact that the Mustang can kind of keep up with the DB5, even though there's quite a big performance disadvantage. And that, you know, the Mustang was built as a bit of a softer car, so it wasn't really designed for sort of the Alpine routes. It was more sort of a straight line blast as a muscle car. So it's quite interesting that they pitched those two cars against each other in, in that sequence. And obviously that gives us the opportunity to see the tyre spikes come out as um, Bond shreds Tilly's um, tyres. So again, that's another car written off effectively. Um, instantly, the DB5 also had a ZF gearbox, which was quite clunky. So there's quite an amusing point where you see um, Bond drop Tilly off the garage um, and then quickly get into reverse and then struggle with the gears to try and get into first again. So it sort of lurches away. And that was principally because of the fact the gearbox was so bad, you even racing drivers struggled to be able to, you know, find the gears with it. It was quite, it was almost like stirring treacle trying to find the gears. So it's quite a funny little moment in the film where it's sort of obviously Connery or the stunt driver is trying to struggle to find the gears for that point. Um, going to the further action sequences, we then later on we see the car used, as Adams mentioned, at the Pinewood Studios for Auric, Goldfinger's, um, you know, sort of criminal lair. And we see the first use of the gadgets. So once the car goes through the gates, um, we see the very first point, as we've mentioned, is the smoke screen. So that removes one car first and then the next point is the all slick where it basically um, causes the other car to slide off the road and explode um, this is also the point where we see the bulletproof screen come up and basically defend bomb which is quite an, an interesting feature the fact that they use the bulletproof doors and the bulletproof metal to provide a protection point and you think that tilly is going to be okay obviously bond tells us to get to the bracken but then obviously um, odd job emerges from the Mercedes chasing and just throws his hat. And it's, as Adams mentioned, it's quite a poignant part of the, the film where it's, you know, it's, it's kind of another Bond girl as, as meta demise. And again, why they didn't choose to just put Bond in one of the back of the Mercedes and just leave him sort of fester with somebody with him at gunpoint is still a mystery. The fact that they let him drive his Aston Martin, having already seen what it can do, and then you get, as Adam's mentioned, you get these great sequences um, throughout the next point where we see the close-up of the gear lever and is Bond going to, you know, the tension, is Bond going to release it now? And we wait and we wait and then he just hits the brakes and then just fires the ejector seat. Again, it's quite a comical moment where you just see the seat sort of fly out, almost an extra sort of throwing it out of the, the top of the roof. And then the dummy just sort of gets launched a couple of seconds later. So it's quite a funny sort of sequence to end the whole action chase. Interestingly, as we've already mentioned, the filming of that sequence is quite interesting because of the way it's shot and the way that it's it's all put together. You know, it's it's very reliant on um, the way that the camera pans and the way that it clo 
closes in on the action. Because when you look at it, the Aston probably isn't going that quickly, in all honesty. Although we see it pass with the other um, henchmen's Mercedes, where they kind of cross over on each other, they're probably not doing any more than sort of 50, 60 mile an hour, which obviously would still feel quite fast in that sort of tight, hemmed-in environment. But when you consider it's not actually that quick for, for a, a bond chase, um, and the fact that it's the, the film in the way that the camera moves and the way that the camera pans in on the front of the car, it makes it more exciting because it feels like it's a lot faster and it feels like it's more frantic in terms of Bond trying to get away and trying to defeat, you know, these villains. Um, and it's it just kind of sets up the whole tone for the film. Um, I once also mentioned the very ending sequence, the fact they write off the, the DB5 as well. The fact that, you know, it's quite a clever sequence where it's literally just the mirror completely out about Fox's bond and even though he's trying to use the machine guns he can't escape and he literally has to crash the car as his only means of escape and that, that leads us into the next sequence of the film where he's on the um the the laser table let's say um so it's quite an interesting way that they put that together and the fact that you know if he'd have braked and probably stopped he could have probably worked out that it wasn't a villain's car coming towards him but in you know in the the tension and the stress of that situation obviously you know you're coming up to a, what you think is a dead end and your only option is to sort of fire your way out of that that position um and it is really interesting how it was all put together and how it was filmed um i know we've mentioned a lot about the db5 so i'll just move on quickly to the other cars um that appeared we've already mentioned the ford mustang that tilly drives um Obviously, one of the standout cars is Goldfinger's uh, Rolls-Royce Series 3 Phantom, which appears quite a lot in the early parts of the film. And it's quite ingenious that it's basically, that is how he smuggles the gold. It's the fact that the car is made in, almost entirely from 18 karat gold, and that's how he's able to smelt it down. It's the fact that the car is where, where he's literally where his money is, and he's able to, to use that to smuggle the gold in to different countries um, a few of the other cars we've already mentioned the Lincoln Continental that odd job uses to kill solo um, the fact that that gets crushed quite a way into the film um, also we've mentioned it was already a 1964 car that was driven but a 1963 car that gets crushed um, a few other interesting ones Felix Leiter gets the um, the 60s fourth Thunderbird which is quite an unusual choice really for um, for kind of a CIA agent, you expect them to have something quite staid and quite boring, you know, sort of a station wagon or, you know, quite a saloon or something quite dull, but it's quite an exciting car that he gets considering, you know, his role in the CIA and his, um, his overall standing. So it's quite interesting that he gets to sort of drive around in a sports car for pretty much the whole duration of his time in the film. Um, another few interesting vehicles to mention is the there's a couple of Lockheed Jet Stars, which obviously that's Goldfinger's private plane and the American sourced um, US Air Force plane that gets used later on. This is always part of my favorite part of films where particularly early films from the 60s and 70s where it's, I play the game of spot the strings. So you can basically see where the budget probably was starting to run out. So they had to rely on a model of the planes in the sort of tracking sequences. Um, and you can literally see it is just a, a model suspended by a couple of strings on either side, um, which is always quite entertaining. Um, and again, these are kind of groundbreaking planes for the time. They're kind of seen as almost the Ferraris of the skies. They're quite fast, quite light, um, and obviously very luxurious. So it kind of suited the style of the film. You know, we've we've gone from kind of the Boeing 747s and the BOAC planes to the more luxury private jets. Probably my two favourite points of the film, though, um, just because I, I love this name. When 
uh, Solo is getting his gold um, lowered into the um, into his car. It's lowered by a Coventry Climax forklift truck. Now, if you're not aware of Coventry Climax, they were a company, that, an automotive engineering company that were quite popular in the kind of 60s and 70s. They worked a lot in Formula One, worked a lot with Jaguar, with things like sports cars and with their, um, with their luxury cars. And they made a lot of different automotive vehicles, chief among which was these forklift trucks. Now, it's quite entertaining, the name, firstly, but also just the fact it's this random Coventry brand that seems to appear in America um, obviously, probably filmed actually in Pinewood Studios in one of their um, one of their back lots. Um, the other uh, vehicle to mention is if you watch very carefully in Q's lair when he's introducing the Aston Martin DB5, for no apparent reason, there's also a Morris Minor van in the background, which makes no sense at all because it's not there for any gadgets or any purpose at all. It's not even mentioned in the film. But for some reason, there's just two engineers stood by it, which I assume was probably their sandwich van for the you know for that era. It was just it was just sat in the back of shot just to, to make a, an appearance. So it's quite interesting to see that as well, the fact that we've just got a random Morris Minor in the background. Um, and it's just quite an interesting mix of the different cars. But certainly, if you ask any sort of either Bond fan or non-Bond fan to name a car either from this era or just one of Bond's cars in general, the Aston Martin DB5 will pretty much always come up because it's the one that everybody remembers. And yes, it's become a bit of a gimmick and a bit of a cliche in the more modern films. You know, the fact that we keep coming back to it in the more modern films, starting with Goldeneye, and the fact that it, it does get overused a lot in in modern cinema. But it's it's such an icon. It's it's kind of it is one of those iconic cinematic cars, and it just summed up not only the film but that sort of era as well. That era of glamour and success, and you know, and the fact it was just so cool as well. You could forgive it for any sort of technical infringements or technical. Um, failures that it had it was just such a cool car and it just kind of it suited Sean Connery's character as Bond as well the fact that it kind of made that era and it kind of made made it so glamorous that it was so important they picked that car for that film because no other car could have really set it up in that same way and I think it is just a brilliant way to to summarize that era and the fact that we still refer to it now as an endearing symbol of why we love that car so much sorry that went on for way too long sorry Good luck editing that, Martin. So that was Phil's monologue there on the DB5 and assorted vehicles. Congratulations for making it this far. I'm sure you're livid that I deleted the part about the Coventry Climax forklift trucks. Send your complaint letters to rogermorescubbyhole at gmail.com. Also incredible that Phil said that was one of his favourite parts. He's describing the best car in the Bond franchise and he's hung up on the Coventry Climax. But, uh, but anyway, hopefully that gives you a deeper appreciation of the DB5, of the Coventry Climax range, of Phil's vast car knowledge, and hopefully also of my editing skills. Imagine trying to fit that into a three-minute segment. That's it for this special episode. Roger Moore's Cubbyhole will return next week with the full hosting team. We'll be discussing our thoughts on Pierce Brosnan's first outing as Bond in Goldeneye. Thanks for listening. I was Martin, and that was Phil on the Aston Martin DB5. Sorry.